All right, it's the last Wednesday of the month, and that means on Rule Breaker Investing, it is mailbag. As I've always said, it is your mailbag because we do this for you. You send us questions, and we, and it's not just I, I always bring in a cast of all-star fools, which I've done once again this week. We do our best to answer your questions. So, get ready, get started. Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag, this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks to Hello Monday from LinkedIn for supporting The Motley Fool's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Hello Monday is a new podcast from LinkedIn's editorial team about how to get the most from Monday and also your career. Find Hello Monday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And this episode of Rule Breaker Investing is also brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Keep track of the market with your voice by enabling the TD Ameritrade skill for your Amazon Echo. Or message them on Facebook and Twitter to place trades, learn new investing concepts, and get stock quotes. See what's new at tdameritrade.com slash innovation. Member SIPC. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy Wednesday. This podcast tends to come out on Wednesdays, Eastern U.S. time, around 4 or 5 p.m., but you might be in a different time zone, a different day altogether, or perhaps you don't listen to this podcast when it comes right out on the wires. Perhaps you wait a day or two, or it's your jog on Friday, or maybe we're a weekend pleasure for you. Well, we're here once a week to educate, to amuse, and to enrich, as we said from the very first days of The Motley Fool, or as we articulate our company's purpose today, my podcast has the same, to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. So, I hope we can do all three of those for you this week. Well, it's been a motley month of March. Looking back over the podcast, we kicked off the month with our Mental Tips, Tricks, and Life Hacks, Volume 4. And then the second week, we talked about ESG investing, environmental, societal, governance. People focused on socially responsible investing. Does that work? I tried to speak to that fairly emphatically on the podcast that came out March 13th. And then last week, it was the Market Cap Game Show, Episode 7. Always fun. Once a quarter here on Rule Breaker Investing, Emily Flippin, starring once again in this month's Market Cap Game Show. And I've got a few hot takes to share from Twitter before we get into our mailbag points. One comes from Austin Lieberman at Austin Lieb on Twitter. Austin, you wrote, hoping I'm secretly playing in parentheses and beating David G. Fool, that's me, or my brother Tom Gardner Fool, or my other Motley Fool friends in their new investing mobile app game that's in beta. It's lots of fun. TMF Roger has been a blast to work with. Well, thank you very much, Austin. Now, regular listeners of this podcast know that we are building a mobile game to make investing more popular, a little bit more mainstream, but really, at its heart, it's not trying to be investor simulation, anything like that. It's trying to be a really fun game. And I've had a lot of fun playing the game. Austin, I'm not sure I saw you on the other end of any of my duels over the past few weeks, but a lot of you listen. A couple of months ago, when I put out a beta invite through this podcast, we had over 100 beta testers. I hope you had a great time. Austin, I'm glad you did. We're even still discussing what the name of our game is going to be, but I know we'll have a chance to put out another beta invite in a couple of weeks as we take in the feedback that we got from you all a few weeks ago, tweak things a bit, and try to make it better as we keep developing what I think we might call Investor Island, but we'll see. We've talked about Stock Star, Stock Gods. There's different names that we have in play here at The Fool, but I kind of like Investor Island because that's what we're doing. We're on an island. We're having some battles with fireballs. There's like a Tiki God statue in the middle, and it's all powered by stocks in the stock market. So, anyway, thank you, Austin. And then Philip Silvera at PhilS1021 said at RBI Podcast, just heard the Life Hacks pod. Great stuff. Wife and I like to mentally double the cost of any new purchase to account for foregone savings opportunities. Worked well when we still had student debt to pay off. Example, is that $150 coat worth $300 to you? Wrote Phil Foulon. Well, I really like that. I love mental tips, tricks, and life hacks, especially, Phil, things that help us think better about money. So I really like that one. Cheers. Thank you for contributing. So those are a few hot takes from Twitter reacting to the month that has been March 2019. But now, without further ado, let's get into it. Mailbag item number one. 
This is from Randy Stevenson, writing from Venice, Florida. He said, Hi, David. I've been following Motley Fool since the AOL days. I have to add, before we go on, hashtag awesome. I've been a subscriber to Hidden Gems and currently to Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor. Thank you for enriching my family these decades. That always means a lot. Thank you, Randy. One of the characteristics of Rule Breakers is strong past price appreciation. Please explain what this is and what metrics or sources of information are used to find these companies. Thank you again, Randy Stevenson. So, this is a quick one for me, Randy. Yes, you're right. One of the six attributes that we look for finding Rule Breakers is strong past price appreciation. Now, back in the day when I was first dreaming up this approach and before we even wrote it in our first book, Rule Breakers, Rule Makers, where I really first talked about Rule Breaker investing in book form, but back in those days, I was using Investor's Business Daily, the newspaper, which for years has, I think I think it's still present tense, but I don't really use IBD that much anymore, has printed what's known as a relative strength score, which is kind of a 0 to 100 indexed view of how well that stock has done over the last three months. So, for example, if it was a 94, that means that stock has done better than 94% of all other stocks on the market. It's kind of like if you were really good in your math SATs and you were 94th percentile, it's the same thing for judging price movements of stocks. And I like to look back around three months and just kind of see how stocks are doing, which stocks are doing well. More broadly, though, Randy, primarily for this attribute of rule breaker investing, I just look for a stock that is doing well. That's going up. I like to find. I think the winners keep on winning. I know you know that from me, and uh, so I don't have. An, I don't necessarily use IBD's relative strength ratings anymore. I just kind of look at the stock and I say, "Hey, has that beaten the market over the last three months?" Or maybe in some cases it's doubled over the last year. And again, I think the key point here is a lot of people look at that and say, "Well, I'm not going to buy it now." Because look how well it's already done. Or I missed that double over the last year. But we, as rule breakers, generally feel the opposite way. And this trait is there to teach you and to train you to think in a winning way, I think, about rule breaker investing, where we look for stocks that are doing really well, because that's the market telling us that this company is onto something good and doing great stuff. So, Randy, I hope that's helpful. There's no hardcore metric I use. In fact, when I Googled relative strength, which you can do from the comfort of your own home computer or mobile phone, you'll see a lot of sites that have it define it differently. And a lot of them are about charting and technical analysis, which are so called tools, and I do that a little bit with a smile on my face, that I never use and actively try to avoid. I don't look at charts and I don't believe that there are patterns that tell us where stocks are about to move. I realize there's a whole industry dedicated to that, but uh, that can bedevil people. So don't start necessarily Googling relative strength and start using those sites, at least in my experience, to guide you toward good investment decisions, because often I don't think that they will. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number two. This comes from Luke Joseph, writing from Sydney, Australia. Luke, thank you for being a rule breakers member. And yes, yes, I do tend to prioritize questions from members. On this podcast. Now, we welcome all questions here at The Motley Fool, and we truly are trying to make the whole world smarter, happier, and richer. But when somebody tells me, Randy Stevenson, that he's been a member since our AOL days, or Luke Joseph, that from Sydney, Australia, you're a Rule Breakers member, there's a little bit of me that pushes you to the closer to the top of the queue. So, anyway, Luke, great question. You said, I'm fully on board with the Rule Breakers style of investing. I've done well with many of your recommendations over the past three years. Like you, valuation is not usually a primary consideration for me when selecting whether or not to buy a stock. I usually prioritize, Luke writes, a company's revenue growth rate, total addressable market, and proportion of recurring revenue. And I like all three of those. Those are good things to look for, Luke. I have no problem, you go on, with paying upwards of 10 or even 20 times revenue. So, the market cap of a stock would be 20 times the sales, which is quite a high number. It looks high even to us, but we have similarly, Luke, had no problem in some cases doing that. For a fast-growing enterprise software business, you write, however, I've noticed that sometimes fast-growing biotech companies can sit on a much higher valuation than this for a very long time. I'm thinking specifically of Gardent Health, Abiomed, and Mazor Robotics before its acquisition, which often had a price-to-sales ratio above 30. I seem to have a problem paying this much for a business, because I don't know why biotechs seem to be able to levitate on such high valuations for so long. Is it because they often have monopolies? Or is it because investors know that patients will have no choice to buy their products eventually? I would appreciate if you could assemble a dream team of Carl Thiel, Aaron Bush, and yourself to explain 
why this is the case. Kind regards all the way from Sydney, Luke, Joseph Luke. Delighted to have your question. And it is my pleasure to bring together the very dream team, Aaron Bush, that he just called out. I'm so humbled to be on a dream team, period. Thank you. So am I. I've never been on one before (laughs) until now, but this is why we have a podcast, so we could just make ourselves a dream team. Yeah, we should do this more often. And I want to say hello to Carl Teal, calling in from his home somewhere in and around Austin, Texas. Carl, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Well, Carl, you have made some great biotech selections for Motley Fool Rule Breakers over the years. Aaron, you have done a wonderful job picking stocks, many different types of stocks, both in Motley Fool Rule Breakers and other services, too. Luke wants to hear from you guys. I want to hear from you guys. Aaron, I'm going to kick it to you first. What do you think about when you look at a stock that's trading at a really high multiple of sales? Well, I would say it's everything is relative. Uh, a high multiple of sales probably indicates that a company is growing quickly, that people have high expectations. And that's typically a very good thing, actually, because um, it means the company is doing things right. Probably means that they're in a large market. Um, and in some cases, it actually is a reason to look deeper. I think sometimes there's a difference between when a stock is overvalued and when people say it looks overvalued. And I think a lot of times when you start seeing a lot of people say that a company is overvalued and that is almost like the you know the typical sentiment at any given time, even when a stock is trading at 20 times sales, um, it, it often shows um, just based on what I've seen learning from from David and Carl and, and lots of seeing lots of rule breaker picks over the years, um, it often shows that, you know, if that company does turn out to succeed and continue growing at fast rates for longer than people realize, that some of those people who think that it is overvalued, they may, might change their minds. And in some mm. ways, the act of them changing their minds um, is what can push that stock up even higher. And that's why attribute number six of rule breaker investing is when people call out a stock as overvalued, that makes us bullish. Now, Carl, you've specialized a lot in biotech. Do you have any particular biotech thoughts for Luke? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I guess starting, you know, stepping back and being a little more basic about it, I mean, one of the reasons is because biotechs, and it's not just biotechs, but they're a good example, have extraordinarily high margins. So they're always going to have a higher price to sales multiple. I mean, just an example of, say, a grocery store chain that tends to get a ton of revenue but make very, very little profit on it. They're going to trade at you know probably less than one-time sales. Um, a company with extraordinarily high profit margins is always going to trade at a higher multiple of sales. That's, that's just a very basic reason. But another reason you know, is, is ultimately a company is worth what the market thinks it's worth. And it's been shown time and time again that... Um, Biotechs, and I think kind of particularly sort of smaller and mid-cap biotechs, uh, will command takeout prices that are at these kind of price-to-sales mm. multiples. And um, just that, that, that is a real grounding in reality of what is something truly worth to somebody else. You see that happen particularly with companies that um, are also expected to see those sales grow very quickly. And that, that's why you'll tend to see these multiples be higher for, like I said, smaller and mid-cap companies. Yeah, and I would say you do see similar attributes in the software industry as well. It's probably less explosive, less binary in a lot of ways, but but there are some similarities in the sense that this is a trend that is taking over workplaces. It a lot of these companies are adapting these technologies very quickly. In enterprise software, you're talking yes, about. Yes, in yep. enterprise software. So lots of companies are jumping on board very quickly. It's very sticky. So once they're in, they're staying in. And what we're seeing a lot nowadays is um, what we consider like a net expansion rate. And these companies literally are spending oftentimes 20% or 30% more the next year. Um, just on on upgrades and all sorts of things. And when you look at these software companies at scale, they also are very profitable. Potentially, you know, thirty percent of their revenue turns into to cash flow. Um, so so I think uh, we're seeing high price to sales ratios because of not what the company, what their economics look like today, but what they will be many years from now. So instead of really thinking about that one ratio, I think it's more interesting just to look at the market cap. 
itself and and think about what could that market cap be at some point in the future and then hopefully if you can you can think of a much bigger number than mm-hmm. today's ratio is of less importance. And that's why we play the market cap game. We've even made that into a game show on Rule Breaker Investing, because I agree with you, Aaron, that market cap is a really helpful guide for us. Now, Carl, I also have kind of a second question I'm just going to thread into this same point, but Colin Anderson wrote in, and he was talking about how he also loves Rule Breaker Investing, but he does look over his portfolio and he sees a number of his companies, companies like MongoDB or Square or at different stages, Shopify, with negative earnings, companies that do not have a price to earnings ratio because they do not have earnings. Is this kind of the same consideration again, just like a multiple in this case that doesn't even exist? But you know, should we feel comfortable owning these companies? And which companies with no earnings would you prefer to own over the other ones that you wouldn't want to own? Right. So obviously, a company that never earns money is is not a worthwhile investment. So every time you see a company that has negative negative earnings um, and is positively valued, that is on the assumption that uh, that it will eventually uh, start earning money or or start producing cash flow for its investors. And you know the the I mean the numbers can be tricky, right? I mean you know a company that's just turned profitable. You know, produced three or four pennies of profit during the last year might have a, a price-to-earnings ratio in the hundreds, all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. But you know, the the what, what you're looking at is how quickly is this going to to grow into something? And particularly as a company sort of first steps into profitability, that can happen extraordinarily quickly, which is why it's really it, it is good to to look a good ways ahead and think about not what our earnings today, but what our earnings going to look like. Yeah, one one topic that venture capitalists and particularly pay attention to is the idea of unit economics. So less of like what are the economics of the entire company at one point, but what are the the economics of acquiring one user and then their lifetime value and the value that they bring to the company. So that's unit economics, where you just take like a single customer, and you see what is the economic dynamic around that customer, and then you project it out to others. Right. So, so it's just another way of looking at what could this company, what could their economics be in the long run once those unit economics start becoming the norm for everybody. And people do that with retail stores too. You might look at a sure. single Potbelly or a single Starbucks back in the day and go, hmm, what if there are a lot more of these? We could maybe make some better. Projections about the value of that entity, right? So, so there are, there are different ways to slice and dice the the numbers, but but I, I do think unit economics is particularly helpful when companies are losing money. All right, so there are some thoughts from three different rule breakers, one man's dream team, if you will. Aaron, Carl, thank you very much. Thanks, David. Thank you. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number three. And this one comes from Bill Housley, who's written this podcast a number of times. Bill, it's my pleasure to feature your latest question, and I love this one. And in fact, I've pulled my friend in, Bill Mann here of Motley Fool fame. Bill, welcome. How are you, David? I'm doing really well. And you and I have both looked over this question from Bill. Yeah. And it's one of the more interesting ones that we've got. We're going to speak to that in a sec. But Bill, I I want to mention I had said on my podcast to my listeners a few weeks ago that I taped early because we went skiing. Yeah. And one of the things about that ski trip in Snowmass, Colorado, for me this year is that my son, who'd broken his leg, a compound fracture, got back up on skis for the first time in three years, and it was pretty great to see him out there. Bill, I believe my son Zach is not the only one who had a compound fracture from skiing in the last couple of. No, days. it wasn't so much the skiing; it was more the falling that did it. But uh, yeah, so I was I was going 62 miles an hour when I fell, and this was the day before the Atlanta New England Super Bowl, and I was so doped up during the Super Bowl that I thought that I was actually controlling the game. So you know, <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know if you remember all of the weird things that happened. in I the do. Game. It was an incredible you, second half. Yeah, you might wonder where that came from. It, it was you? actually yeah, it was my magical powers. <laughs> all right, so Atlanta New England. This all runs together in my head, but. Bill, what month was that? Yeah, was that? Fe- February of 17. 17, yeah. right. So here you are, two years later. So how long did it take you to convalesce? Are you back? I am. So I started really exercising again in about October of this last year. So it was that kind of, it was maybe I waited a little too long to start exercising you again, but it, but it hurt, you know. So, and doctor finally said, look, it's going to hurt. And maybe your son's gone through the same thing. Like it is going to hurt, but you just kind of need to play through to the other side. And he was right. So it didn't affect yeah. your stock picking skills, though. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, I didn't quite have the same prescience with, you know, because I, I pretty much nailed that Super Bowl. <laughs> 
<laughs> Are you going to ski again? Yes, I'll ski again. Uh, I didn't ski this year, simply you know, timing and uh, nervousness. But I, I, I love the sport and we'll you know, look forward to doing it again. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. And so, Bill Housley's question, he said, Dear Dave, this is short. He said, this belonged to my great uncle. I've discovered this company was eventually sold to Union Pacific. I don't know what to do with it. And Bill includes a picture of a stock certificate. And the company is Chicago and Northwestern Railway Company. And like a lot of these certificates, this is a beautiful piece it's of art. Gorgeous, yes. And this is from the 1930s. 1937 is when it was uh, when it was executed. So obviously the company doesn't exist anymore, but there are plenty of places where this stock certificate itself, particularly if it's in good condition, could net bill a lot of money. Is that uh, right? I would take it to any coin and stamp store because one of the things that they also will do is they will deal in old certificates. It's called Scripophily, the uh, the uh, collecting S C R I P O P I P H I L Y Scripophily. Scripophily yep. is yep. the collection. Dot com. Of, yeah. Dot okay. com. Yep. Yeah. Collection of stock certificates, but yeah. So I actually recently on Scripophily bought a share certificate just like this from my grandfather's company, which is called Cannon Mills, which is a textile company from Kannapolis, North Carolina. So yes, I can speak to this both as someone who loves collecting these kinds of things mm. and just loves old stock certificates, but also as someone who has recently been on the other side of their, this transaction. That so, is a great reminder, because yeah. truly, as I read Bill's question, first of all, I haven't had this experience, so I'm like, i got to have an expert in from Molly Pool, <laughs> and we get Bill Mann this week, which is awesome. But um, I was just thinking, you know, hey, maybe... Union Pacific paid something for this company that's decent. Union Pacific's still around, so maybe yeah. this is worth a lot of money. But you're pointing out that whether or not that's true, and it might be, the artwork itself and collectors, there's a whole market out there for these kinds of certificates. Yeah. So there, there is something called the Asheet Rules. And so probably if this has been sitting around, what Asheet is, is it says that after a period of time, the company might consider the shares abandoned. He should absolutely check with Union Pacific. I'm guessing that they have long ago struck these shares from their register. I see. So this is not actually, you're not going to find out that you're a millionaire. Because you could. These were it's abandoned. A beautiful they were not claimed. This was 1937. I see. We are 82 years That's later right. right now. So, right. so probably there's no stock market value to this. You Highly, can't claim one percent yeah, ownership of Union Pacific at this point. Right. Highly yeah. unlikely. But you, it, it's it's worth checking. Union Pacific might want to get their hands on this stock certificate. They might think that that's a pretty cool thing. Hmm. But it would be it would be fabulous. I I, I hope Bill lets us know what happens. But uh, yeah, I, I I think of it more in terms of because of the Asheet rules. I think of this as what a collector would do with it, and okay. I guarantee you that's not worth zero. Really cool. Last question for you, Bill. Before I let you go, I'm not asking you how much you paid to buy that certificate, but typically, I'm sure a lot of us are wondering what is what is the typical price for a handsome piece of art, an actual stock certificate from. 80 years ago, are these $500, $1,000? Are we talking a lot more than that or certainly, less? Certainly can be. And what Bill has in his hands is something that's very special because there are railroad collectors. you know, So, railroads and power companies and things like that, but especially the railroads. Mm. The other one that tends to be worth a lot is old Disney certificates tend to be, they can be upwards of $500. So, I'm really curious to know what, what, uh, what comes of this. Awesome. Thank you, Bill. No problem, David. Good to see you. All right. Rule breaker mailbag item number four. And oh my gosh, is this Emily flipping in the studio? And is she here to give a tip to Market Cap Game Show players? Emily, welcome. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. And it's a delight. But I'm going to make that a teaser because, in fact, I have an ad read to share first. So. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by LinkedIn's Hello Monday podcast. Now, on Sunday nights, a lot of people tend to get anxious thinking about going back to work, which, side note, I think is kind of sad. But, but what if Monday became something we could look forward to? Well, Hello Monday examines work, how to like it, how to change it, and maybe even how to love it. Each week, host Jesse Hempel sits down with featured guests to investigate the role work plays in our lives. It was released on March 4th, and it's a fascinating podcast. Find Hello Monday from LinkedIn on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
Well, Emily, I'm looking at some of the hot takes we got from Twitter, and a number of them said something along these lines. This was from Don Karpik at Tokyo Boiler. Emily Flippin is amazing. Hashtag I lost to Emily. <laughs> or Fusco at Fusco for Real says, considering that one of Emily's stock recommendations is the best performer in my portfolio this year, I bet y'all gonna lose to Emily in this game. By the way, just listen to yesterday's Market Foolery podcast with Emily on. Always delivers the good. So Emily, I thought, you know, the people are calling for this. I had to have you back for an encore this week. And thinking about your outstanding performance in the first two episodes that you've been on the Market Cap Game Show, I thought maybe you could just share a tip or a pointer to somebody who wants to up his or her game at the Market Cap Game Show. You mean somebody who wants to beat me next time? Yeah. people And, and there was at least one person who did go, oh. hashtag, I beat Emily, could I be Impressive. on the show? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've said it on the show before. Um, and you know, when you're looking at market caps, I think the most important thing and the thing that's helped me the most has just been to internalize whether or not that stock is a small cap, a mid cap, or a large cap. And honestly, if you own the stock and if you're somebody, you know, like an analyst here at the Motley Fool who spends their entire day looking at companies, you probably already have a good idea about your investing thesis. And that investing thesis probably depends on how much growth that company has ahead of it. So you may already have a sense about the size of the company, even if the market cap to you is just some vague number, but you know, oh, this company is a small company operating in a growing area. That means a lot, and that actually gives you a great starting point. And I will say, a 20% range is generous, um, but when you're looking at companies, all day, every day. It's an unfair advantage. I guess I'd that's say. probably true, and that is your job. And most of us are just playing at home as exactly. we have other jobs, so <laughs> it's it's understandable. But that that's a great point, Emily. And I guess my only follow up there is: How do you personally? What numbers do you use for small, medium, and large? I realize there's different ways and different parameters people use. How do you frame things up? I think whenever I, especially when I'm looking at companies with the intent of going on something like the market cap game show. Anything below a $5 billion company, I think I say, is a small cap. Mm -hmm. Anything under $100 billion, mid cap to me. Anything so, that's a big of, range, it, it 5 to 100 range. It for mid caps. Yep, yep. Um, but yeah, so there's there's a big difference, you're right. There's a big difference between a company that maybe is like match.com and it's closer to 15 billion and something right. that's, you know, closer to 70. T-Mobile or exactly. something, or, yeah. Uh, but you can also think about those companies. I mean, use Match and T-Mobile as an example. I mean, you as a consumer probably have a sense about how big those companies are just using them in right. your everyday life. Who advertises more on television at Super <laughs> exactly. Bowls? I would say T-Mobile probably more than Match, right? That's yes. that's so horse sense. I love it. And um, you know, I'm going to go on to the next mailbag item, but would you hang around for that one, Emily? Yeah, of course. And before we go to number 5, I do want to mention one other. I this might have been my favorite tweet to us in the past month. This comes from Fergus Cullen at Fergus Cullen. This hooks right into the Market Cap Game Show. Fergus wrote, played the game using http colon slash slash marketcapgameshow.com. Fergus says, with high school investing club I work with. Educated, checkmark, amused, checkmark, enriched, working on it, he writes. High score got six out of ten. So, why wow. do I love that tweet so much? Because it reminds me that Clay McKinney, one of our listeners and a talented programmer, created Inspired by our podcast game show, marketcapgameshow.com. And anybody who wants to up their game, just go to that site. Clay created it for you. And I love to think that Fergus is there with his high school kids that he's coaching using marketcapgameshow.com. What a world. All right, mailbag item number five. And speak of what a world, love this one. Is this my favorite mailbag item of the month? Close, maybe. Real close. Awesome. Hi, it starts. My name is Jeff Pugh. I'm an actor in New York City, currently performing in Frozen on Broadway. I've been a subscriber to Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers for a few years and an avid listener to all of the Fool podcasts. Over the past year, I've been successful at converting two of my friends in the show to the Motley Fool way. We've enjoyed discussing stock picks, following the Fool's guidance, forming strategies on how to best position ourselves for the future. We are all currently beating the market thanks to you. Well, Jeff Pugh and friends, and really the whole cast of Frozen, and frankly, all of Broadway, thank you. Awesome. 
Jeff goes on, here's my question. Do you ever sell a position you've been holding for a long time to free up capital for a big purchase like a down payment on a house, down payment on a weekend house, investment property, renovation, new landscaping, college tuition, or helping a family member in a time of need? Ideally, we would all have enough savings on top of our investments to pay for these types of big purchases. But what if we don't. Is it okay to be holding some of our biggest positions with the intention to sell when we have enough money to achieve a goal we've been working towards for a long time? When do we use the money we've been earning? Jeff concludes, I love The Motley Fool. I've been listening to you and your colleagues long enough now that I almost feel like I know you. Thanks for the fantastic advice and education. Sincerely, Jeff Pugh. Now, Emily, I know that we're at different generations. We've established this. You are younger than I am. I would say by about a generation, because I have kids that are about your age. In fact, you were once a summer intern of the Molly Fool, and I believe at least one of my kids was that same summer. So we probably each have different perspectives, which is why I wanted to have you on. Now, I'm assuming you haven't had a lot of big lump sum kinds of payments or needs for your investing portfolio thus far. No, have not been buying myself vacation homes just yet. <laughs> yes, I appreciate that, but. Do you have any take on this? Just your thinking as an investor in terms of like if you have larger positions, um, should you be actively thinking about harvesting them near the time that you might want to buy that house, or or not? Well, it's it's twofold. Um, in general, I think it's fine to cut back on your larger positions or your portfolio as a whole if you need that money to make a planned purchase. I mean, that's what that money um, and for many people is. Is therefore the flip side of that is you really shouldn't be doing it right before you need to buy a house, for instance, because if you're planning to buy a house in three years and you have all of that money invested and a lot of it into you know a handful of stocks, when the market goes down and the like market... fourth quarter of 2018, for example, when <laughs> exactly. a lot of our stocks lost a third of their value, even though a lot of them are back. Exactly. So it's important not to be withdrawing your money when the market could be going through a downtime. So you should ideally plan to slowly transition that money out from whatever stocks, whatever holdings you choose into a safer vehicle for when you need that money in the future. Thank you. Very well put. And I'll just add, Jeff, that yeah, in a lot of ways, this is why we invest, right? It's not just a game that, well, it is a game, it's fun and you should try to win, but this is a game that has real world consequences. Often the reason that we invest is to. To do the things that you talked about. Uh, for me in my own life, um, I bought a house. I've done that a few times. I usually have sold off stock in order to buy that house. That's why I was investing. Uh, and really looking backward, it was some of my arguably worst financial decisions because some of the stocks that I sold have done far better than almost any piece of real estate could. So sometimes you're paying an opportunity cost for transitioning money that was in great stocks into a house that probably won't grow at the same rate as Netflix. But regardless, um, this is why we invest. So I don't think anybody should be shy about selling a large position in order to fund any one of those really key life goals that you articulated. But as Emily said, I, I do want to echo that as I approached buying that house, I knew it was going to be a house I was going to be buying in the next year or two. So I began to sell down positions. If it is going to be selling stock, you start doing it in advance so that you don't set yourself up for a really bad surprise last second as you hoped to fund something big and the market cowed. Now, I probably should move on to rule breaker mailbag item number six, but Jeff included a couple of postscripts and I thought, I have to speak to these, and I have to have my friend Cheryl Paulting back to this podcast. Cheryl, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you so much. I love it. Thank I, you. It's awesome. You totally get it, Cheryl. That's why I keep having you on. Let me just remind our listeners again, Cheryl, what do you do here at The Motley Fool? Yes. Hi, everyone. So happy to be back. I am on the recruiting team here at The Motley Fool. I also work very closely with our org dev fools, our learning and development fools, anyone basically on the people team, which includes communications, health and wellness, onboarding, a lot of fun stuff. We, we say that we're the fun side of human resources. You sure are, and we do it right at The Motley Fool, and thanks to people, amazing people like Cheryl. And speaking of amazing, Emily, I don't know if you were there during Pi Day when Cheryl began <laughs> to recite digits of Pi. Oh, yes. Extremely impressive. <laughs> I mean, we had a couple people go before Cheryl, who did mm -hmm. a great run, and then Cheryl happens to get up. And I, yeah, she got actually got cut off before she could finish yeah, <laughs> all had, of the digits you of pi. Sixty she knew. seconds to <laughs> do the digits of pi. As many, how many did you do? I was a hundred and. 
13. Yeah. I think I said 115, but 113 before. Right, which is amazing. And I'm definitely not going to ask you to replicate that. But how about just give us, you know, the first 20 or so, just as you did it in front of our employees? Yeah. I'll try and do it fast. Uh, 3.14159265358979323846264338. Right. And I'm going to cut her off because at a certain point, it's not interesting (laughs) radio, even though it was amazing to see. At foolish you someone so, yeah. will have someone listening will be like, let's Google this, let's <laughs> let's check this. Well, I, I I do remember Cheryl, you were asked afterwards by a fellow fool here, mm-hmm. you know, how could how could you possibly mm-hmm. know so many digits of pi? And your answer was something about your family. Yes, yeah, so I have a very competitive family, and whenever <laughs> anyone says something like, I'm going to go do this, and they hear it and they're like, you can't do that. It turns into a competition and it gets out of hand. And right. So here we are now. <laughs> I love it. It's beautiful. Okay. So, but I wanted to continue with this uh, remarkable email from Jeff Pugh because he went on to say this. P.S. This is our friend acting in Frozen on Broadway. Jeff says, I'm going to be applying for an internship at The Motley Fool this summer. I've asked my superiors at Frozen if I could be granted a leave of absence. They've said it's possible. As there are a few logistical issues to work through, I'm wondering if I could be so bold as to ask how long it would take to hear back from the team at The Fool, etc. If I submit this week, would I hear back in 10 days, a month, six weeks? He's literally trying to gauge the timing of his potential temporary replacement on stage at Frozen against the hiring time frame of our Motley Fool Summer Intern program. And Cheryl, you are integral to that program. So I thought we had to feature Jeff's question. He does say he thinks Frozen may be his last hurrah in show business. He's ready to begin a new adventure, Jeff Pugh. All right, so Cheryl, two mm-hmm. questions for you about that. First of all, what is our summer internship program? Should people still apply? How many people mm-hmm. apply? Give us some statistics and, <laughs> and perspective. I... For, I just want to comment on this email super quickly. Jeff, this email is amazing, incredible. I can't wait to talk to him. We've actually already connected with Jeff. Very, very exciting there. Our summer internship program is closed to new applications at this time. However, if anyone has any questions, they can always email us at careers at fool.com, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Um, for our internships, it's very, very, very competitive, and we always try and convey that in all of the communications we send out. Uh, Just as an example, from the top of my head, I know we received, just for our software developer roles, uh, which we tend to have three to five maybe, Uh we received over 550 applications just for our software developers. In fact, it made me wonder, I heard sometimes like Chris Hill on Market Mm -hmm. put it out there, hey, apply for our program. We shouldn't tell people that because we're going to be turning away hundreds and hundreds of people and it's it's Mm -hmm. amazing. I think it's an important another thing to keep in mind with our summer internships is that if we find someone who's really really amazing, we may have eight people that summer, but who knows, we might say this person's really incredible, we need them here. All of a sudden we have nine interns that summer. Yep. One summer we had 12 interns, the following summer we had 15. I think for us it's important to just get really incredible people in the door, show them our foolish ways, and then also learn from them. Did Emily Flippin grade out well as a summer intern oh, of Molly Fool 2016? Oh my goodness, Emily Flippin! I, I know she's changer. here, so don't feel <laughs> like that to be nice. But you said game changer. She's a game changer. I think Emily from day one we knew was going to be special, and we're so so lucky that she's now here as a full time, not an intern, full time beating records, telling our members everything they need to know <laughs> to invest better, become happier, smarter, and richer. And we couldn't. It's it's an opportunity um, for us, too, to learn from her. And I think that's one of the best things about our internships is no matter how old you are, no matter what your experience looks like, you can learn, you can form bonds with people and then really come out the other side as so integral to the company. And mm, that's we're great. so happy. Now, Emily, there. I do think you have to up your pie game. You're pretty good at marketing <laughs> game show, but I think we've all seen we could up our pie game. Cheryl, before I let you go, um, let's broaden it just briefly, because yes, our summer internship program, where I'm regularly turning down like kids I coached (laughs) in soccer and (laughs) members of our family, Mm -hmm. because we have really hundreds and hundreds of applications for maybe 12 to 15 positions Mm -hmm. each summer. But let's talk about, you know, maybe I applied, maybe Mm -hmm. I got turned down, but I love it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe I go through another year or two of school, and Mm -hmm. now I'm an adult, and maybe I'm going to apply for a job for real at the Mm -hmm. Molly Fool. So let's talk briefly about that, because I know we're hiring more this year than the last five years, maybe combined almost. Yes, we are 
we are growing like crazy and we're hiring people. We need people to come help us expand our knowledge bubble. Uh, so anything from marketing to editorial to investing to software development. I keep going back to software development, but we're growing. And so I encourage people, if you just are interested in working with us, um, helping us help the world invest better, become smarter, happier, richer, please visit us and visit our careers website at careers.fool.com. There you'll see a page for openings. There's over a 40, I think there's over 40 open positions right now. So definitely check it out. And if there's nothing that really speaks to you at that point, you can always submit a general application. Now, now let's say I'm sitting at home and I'm Mm -hmm. awesome. Would you encourage me to apply? Yes. Let's say I'm sitting at home (laughs) and I'm really way below mediocre. I would say still apply. Still apply. I think so. We take applications from everybody, <laughs> even non-awesome people. Yeah, I I think if you have a passion for what we do here at the Fool, go ahead and apply because awesome. we you don't have to have all of the credentials listed on the job description. If you like Jeff, uh, for example, he's an amazing person on Broadway. We we don't focus on musical theater here, at least to my knowledge. <laughs> uh, but here he is applying for one of our internships and. We're we're excited to talk to him. Mm. So all right, good. So all are welcome, and you might even have better odds getting a job at the Molly Fool <laughs> than getting a summer internship at the Molly <laughs> Fool. But I wouldn't know. Anyway, so to Emily and to Cheryl, thank you both for joining us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks, thank David. You. Thank you. All right, now for something completely different. Hello, David. Brett Wham writes as you probably know the Motley Fool Scorecard. That's our online tool on the Motley Fool site. Our scorecard has not reflected the versus S and P column. For a few weeks now, that's like playing Monopoly without keeping score, says Brett. And let me just insert briefly that certainly it's always been true for us at The Motley Fool that we think you should be comparing your returns against the S&P 500. I like to use the market as the level index, the level set index that I'm trying to beat. And I think a lot of us have that mentality. We've coached our members to think that way over the years. So that's why Brett says that's like playing Monopoly without keeping score. No fun, he goes on. Anyway, since I add to positions every week, thank you, zero dollar commissions, Brett writes, it's been difficult to determine and add to the true winners every week. Can you talk to what happened and when we can expect to keep score versus the S&P again? Thanks, Brett Wham. And thank you, Brett. And my friend Tracy Dahl talk about this ongoing cavalcade of all-star fools this week. Tracy, welcome. Thank you, David Brett. I do apologize that this has been a problem for you for so many weeks. And the timing of your question and the taping of this podcast is spectacular or horrible, (laughs) depending on how you look at it. I know that you're really busy on this, Tracy, so I almost felt guilty pulling you away to ask you to be on our podcast this week, because I know you're working on these things. Yeah, so I work with our tech team, and they are working on everything member-facing on our websites. They understand this is a big problem, and frankly, a lot of our data feeds haven't been as great as they could be for some time, especially as our business is expanding to other countries. We have fools in Singapore now, which is tremendous, but we weren't able to get those global fools' great returns data or other just fundamental data through the provider that we had been using. And so, right now, as we're talking, uh, my tech friends are outside the studio working really hard to update our quotes provider. And unfortunately, this is going to require a little bit of downtime and some of the data that you guys are used to seeing on the sites. Uh, I like to think it's it's always darkest before dawn. Uh, so yes, that data piece on your returns versus the S&P 500 has been missing for a bit. More stuff will actually be missing for a tiny little bit. And then everything will become better. All right. And Tracy, I really appreciate, again, you and the work that you're doing and your team, because you've got a large team working on this that you're helping to lead. Um, So, basically, the Motley Fool changed data providers. That's the big story here, right? That's the big story. I was in a meeting about this earlier this morning, and it turns out our data provider has a data provider. So, this (laughs) we're totally, totally out of our depth here. Um, David, you and I, but right. we are relying on a lot of third-party helpers, and some of this stuff is not anything that we have control over. So we're partnering with a new organization, and we're just trying to work out all the kinks. Okay, so I know we're going to get there, but um, we're we're not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel right here as we publish on Wednesday, March 27th. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. I don't have a hard and fast ETA for you. Everybody is working tirelessly to get this right. For you guys, and I know that data point in particular, so you guys can follow along with your own personal returns at home. 
that is number one in terms of data we want to clean up and fix for you as soon as mm. we're able to restore all of those columns that you're used Great. to seeing on our sites. So maybe Brett Wham and his foolish ilk, maybe Brett uh, uses spreadsheet temporarily or something like that to log your data in between the time we had one data provider and then transition to another. So it's not a decision we ever make lightly. I know that, Tracy. And we don't do it very often at The Motley Fool. We've, we've probably changed our corporate purpose or mission more often than we've changed data providers over 26 years. That's probably true. But that is what we're doing right now. And so, Tracy, keep up the great work. And I hope the team will, too. And, Brett, thank you for writing in. And we know one thing. We're going to hear from you, our members, Whatever we're doing, whether we're doing something really well, like a good stock pick or a bad stock pick of mine, or whether the tools on our site are working or not. So uh, stay tuned. We're working on it. And Tracy, I want you to go back and get back to work again. Don't be on this podcast anymore. Okay, okay, I'm leaving. Thank you, Brett. Hang in, hang tight. Rule Breaker mailbag item number seven. Is that David Kretzman joining me here on Rule Breaker Investing? Yes, it is. Good to be back. David, it's great to hear you. Now, I'd like you to do something special on the show. I rarely extend this honor to anybody else in the show. David, would you read the final ad for this week? Oh, I would be honored. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing Podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. You know that feeling when you actually wake up early to hit the gym? Get the same sense of satisfaction when you roll over your old 401k with TD Ameritrade. Their team of specialists handle the hassle. They'll even call your old provider. Get up to $600 when you roll over your old 401k into an IRA. Visit tdameritrade.com rollover to learn about retirement plan alternatives, offer conditions, and restrictions. Member SIPC. Well done, David Kretzman. Thank you very much. Right. I hope that didn't break any contractual obligations. I'll say this, if there are any lawyers out there, that was read by David, and that works on Rule Breaker Investing. So, hey, well done. I appreciate David. it. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime. All right. Rule Breaker mailbag item number seven. We're about to go to the Gardner-Kretzman continuum, which recurs on this podcast from Excellent. time to time. I'll have you explain that in a sec, but let me just go ahead and read this lovely note from Paul, who wrote, and he actually... He, he compartmentalized a few different sections. I'm not going to read them all, but there was a sucking up to David one, which I'm not going to read. There is, though, this one, which was entitled Sucking Up to Rick. And I would like to read this before getting to the meat of the question coming up. But he writes, also, this is to my producer, Rick Engdahl, Sucking Up to Rick. This section is called, also, Paul writes, as somebody who just recently started a podcast with some friends and is solely responsible for editing it, I wanted to give a special shout out to Rick. That's our own Rick Engdahl. As I have, Paul writes, a better appreciation for the thankless work that editing can be. When done right, Paul says, it seems like nothing was done at all. But when a mistake is made, it's out there for all to hear. Much like a kicker or offensive lineman in football, your work only tends to get noticed when something bad happens. Well, Rick Engdahl, I sure hope that that's not true uh, on this podcast. I, I don't know that you've ever made a mistake, so I'm not sure you would have been called out like an offensive lineman is for holding. But Rick, um, did you feel emotional at any point during that, that, that read from Paul? My condolences, Paul. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> um, time to pull back the curtain just a little bit. Rick, one of the things I do frequently on this podcast is I stop deciding I could say it better, and then I start again, and I say something like this. That's it. Three, two, one. And I just retake, sometimes in the middle of a sentence. Now, Rick, roughly how many times on an average Rule Breaker Investing podcast will I stop and then restart to deliver this final product that you bring out every Wednesday? I don't know of a solid number of restarts, Give a range. but I'd say that, that I usually have about 150 edits in any show. Okay, so I like to think I'm not 3 to one 150 times, but I might be doing it dozens and dozens, possibly up to 150 times. I'll let Rick... But anyway, so that's pulling back the curtain on the onerous work that Rick Engdahl and his ilk do as podcast producers. Paul, you know it because you're doing a podcast and you're editing it too. But anyway, I love the sucking up to Rick section. We had to share that moment. Thank you for making that possible. Or as Paul, Rick, please cue briefly a little bit of romantic music. And I will always love you. Will always love you. <laughs> yes, it is fair to say I love my producer, Rick Engdahl. All right, now to the question at hand, David Kretzman, 
Paul writes, I had a question about the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum. I'm 38 years old, he writes, with a GKC score of around 0.7. And if anything, I would like to make it lower. I had read in the past that individual investors tend to perform best when they stick with their highest conviction ideas, and expanding beyond that tends to dilute performance. That makes sense to me, Paul says, and it's why I've always tried to stick to between 20 and 30 companies. That also seems to go with the rule breaker philosophy to me. Why would I want to invest in my 31st best idea when I could just add more to my two or three best ideas? So, can you tell me where I might be wrong? Why more positions are better? Thanks again for all that you do, Fool on Paul. Awesome question. And I, I think it's something that we repeat a lot of times on this podcast and our other podcasts. Your mileage will vary depending on your own situation, Absolutely. your own preferences, risk tolerance. So there's not necessarily anything wrong with having a GKC score below one, uh, which Paul in this case has. Uh, I, I think mo- most individual investors should shoot for a GKC score of about one, just to be thinking in terms of broad diversification within your individual portfolio. And let me pause you right there, David, because I know we have some new listeners since we last talked about the GKC, which we seem to do every month or two on this podcast. So, could you briefly define our term, the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum? What does 0.7 mean? Sure. So, the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum is probably lapping its one-year anniversary at this point, if I'm not mistaken. I've heard rumors that it's being considered for the Nobel Prize in Economics. It's put both Gardner and Kretzmann in a position, I'm not going to say a pole position, but potentially to win the big bling, that hunk of metal that I always imagine the Nobel Prize must be. Obviously, Modesty can sometimes escape us, but David, what is the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum? Sure. So this is really a simple score. So you take the number of stocks that you own in your portfolio and you divide it by your age. So as an example, let's say you own 50 stocks and you're 25 years old. Your GKC score is calculated by dividing the number of stocks that you own. So in this example, 50 stocks uh-huh. divided by your age, 25 years old. So in this case, your GKC score would be two. Above one. Above not only, one. Well above one. Yes. That's so, remarkable. So, so you have a lot of stocks given your age. A lot of diversification for your age. So if you're 50 years old, you own 50 stocks, your GKC score is one. And generally on this podcast, over the past year or so, as our GKC score has evolved, David, you and I have thought, <laughs> well, maybe it's you don't need to aim for just one, but ideally one or higher. Yeah, and really, 1.0 is kind of the golden mean. And the way of thinking about it is, you know, if you're 25 years old, maybe you should have 25 stocks. I'm 52. I have about 52 stocks. Uh, there's no one way to go here. That's why it's called the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum. And some people will be below one, and they'll be perfectly comfortable with that. Like Paul. And and to Paul's point, the the question of you know, is it okay to to shoot for twenty to twenty five stocks? There's kind of the the Warren Buffett adage or quote that's out there where he says, you know, you should really treat buying stocks like you're punching a card where you only have twenty boxes to to punch or check. Essentially, meaning that over the course of your life, invest as if you're only going to buy twenty companies. And I think the the meaning behind that quote is to really focus on buying quality, great businesses that you want to own for a lifetime, which is something we aspire to do as fools. But on the flip side, in our recommendation services like uh, Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers, or really since the Motley Fool launch with you and Tom over 25 years ago, the focus has really been to continue following and recommending stocks week by week, month by month, and really trying to continually explore the world of business out there absolutely, and try to find all the quality businesses out there. So, I think now in Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, we've probably what, recommended over 300 companies over the past two decades Many or so. Many of which remain active recommendations. But yeah, and in my experience, David, now in our third decade of The Motley Fool, and having been there at the very start, having met so many individual investors of all stripes in many different countries, and David, you're now head of Motley Fool Asia, so you especially know that better than I, but in my experience anyway, the mistake most people make is they are not diversified enough. They do not have enough stocks. So it makes me far happier to see somebody with a lot of stocks than with just a few stocks. And Paul, I think 0.7 is is just fine. You you sound like a savvier guy at the age of 38. You've got less than 38 stocks. And if that's working for you, that's great. And if you want to keep adding to your winners, we like that too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is all directional more than anything. Trying to think in terms of more diversification, not less, especially for beginners, I think 
the, a common mistake is to only buy one or two or three stocks, and that way you're just so emotionally invested in those companies, you're more likely to follow short-term movements in that case and potentially get spooked out of the market or just get the wrong idea that hey, one of my stocks jumped thirty percent this month. I'm really good at this. I'll just keep doing this, rinse and repeat. So yeah, um, and I think. One of the benefits also of owning more stocks is it just encourages you to pay attention to the world maybe a little bit more closely. Your portfolio doesn't get stagnant. So even if even if the new stocks you're adding represent less than 1% of your portfolio, you got a little bit of skin in the game and you can follow along, especially with a year like this where you have a lot of new companies coming public. You have Lyft and Zoom and Uber and a bunch of different companies. Pinterest. Yeah, hitting the public markets, Airbnb. So Having skin in the game, I think, encourages you to follow along like an owner and we can make it a little bit more fun. Absolutely. So, again, thank you, Paul, for a great question. And there is no one size fits all. That is why it's the Gardner Gretzman continuum. And we, of course, have fun with that. But we're deadly serious about the point. Each of us should be maintaining a well diversified portfolio. And that phrase can mean different things for different people at different stages of their life. All right. Well, the last two points on. Mailbag this month, David. Please hang around. Sure. But you know, I have a poem to share, and then an inspirational story, and that's how we're closing it out. So, David, if you're moved to tears by the poem, I want you to let people know that. Absolutely. Or if you love the story at the end, maybe you'll have uh, an insight. So, rule breaker mailbag item number eight. Now, this comes from Alden Dyer, who wrote a very thoughtful note as a younger guy talking about perceptions about capitalism and business among people his age, reacting to some of what we've been talking about in the last few weeks on the podcast. You know. What about socialism? What about capitalism? And Alden, I don't have time to share your very thoughtful and well-articulated arguments here, but I did have time to share the poem that you wrote at the end, because we like poetry on this podcast. So, thank you for a great long note, Alden, but let me share your creation with David Kretzman and all of our fellow Rule Breakers. You wrote, after saying, I have also written an investing poem, Invest! It's the best! You might not beat all the rest, but build up that egg to bring back to your nest. Bring up that leg and get a leg up. With just one sip and with just one sup, you are off with a zip. And you're doing quite fine. You've built up a treasure from pennies and dimes. It gives you great pleasure and compounds over time. Security is achieved for yourself and your kin. Our posterity are relieved, although not that quick. A foolish win helping them through thick and through thin. Saving up money not only helps you, at first it seems funny, but it helps others, too. It helps us help others, like we want to do, so that you may help others, not just one or two. I say it helps us have fun and get through. Thank you, Alden, for your poem, Invest. Alden or Dr. Seuss? I'm not moved to tears, but I am moved. (laughs) There was a little bit of, oh, the places you'll go. Maybe it's how I read it. I think I've established before, I don't even like the book, oh, the places you'll go. That's my least favorite of Dr. Seuss's works, even though I know for many people it's their favorite and they give it away as a graduation gift to somebody. Anyway, I think we both love Theodore Geisel's creations, and I love that you saw Seuss in Alden's work and early Geisel. All right, and finally, this month, Mailbag item number nine. This one comes from Christian Belko. Hi, David. I wanted to thank you for stressing the importance in holding on to stocks, even your losers, as a part of your portfolio strategy. I listened to your methodology, and I kept holding a small position in the company that I thought would do well. I did my homework. The company had a good balance sheet, as well as some promising things on the horizon. But because I bought the stock at the higher end, it had never recovered back to where it was at its high cost basis. Nevertheless, Christian writes, I decided just to keep this position and ride it all the way down to zero if it came to pass, using it as a lesson learned. So imagine my surprise, Christian continues, when I looked at my quotes loser stock on a Monday morning only to find that it was up over 120% from its close the previous Friday. That stock for me was Spark Therapeutics, ticker symbol O-N-C-E. And it not only made back my original investment, but the $114.50 a share buyout allowed me to cash out this at an all-time high and have new money to reallocate for other investments on my watch list. So, thank you for helping me learn this lesson. I've learned that with time, patience, and a willingness to let your losers run, your biggest loser can turn into one of your bigger winners. I look forward to seeing what my other quotes losers will do in future. Thank you, 
and Fulan Christian Belko. Patience is a powerful thing. Not not all losers turn into winners, and not all winners are guaranteed to be future winners. I know, David, your your style is really built on the idea of actually adding to your winners, not just holding them, but actually adding to them. But especially in the world of biotech, sometimes you'll see these wild short-term movements when there's a, a buyout announced, or a drug gets approved, or a drug doesn't get approved. You see some really volatile short-term movements. Yeah, I think what happened to Christian, none of us should expect that would happen to us. Because at least for me, I... I I've invested for a long time, and I'm happy to say we've got some winners there in our rule breakers and stock advisor portfolios. But I don't think I've ever had a 120% premium buyout for any stock that I've ever held here at the age of 52. And for it to be, in Christian's case, a significant loser and flip to a magical, truly magical winner, I don't think that's something I would expect to happen again anytime soon, Christian. But your point, and David, your point to Christian's point about patience and being willing to hold, sometimes it can all come up roses. Yeah, I would look at Chipotle as a recent example where you know you had the the share price over seven hundred fifty dollars. I think back in twenty fourteen, then you had the health scare with E. coli, and just it seemed like there was constantly pessimism surrounding the company. The share price went down to below two hundred fifty dollars a share, and today, as we tape this, I think it set a new fifty two week high at six hundred eighty dollars a share. So yeah. it can pay to be patient, and certainly, uh, you know, there there are some investors who I would say specialize in looking at some of those beaten down situations, and sometimes you can find a gem in the rough. But I think at the very least, it's worth being patient, especially when there's a company there that has a demonstrated long-term track record of success, like Chipotle had for many years and even decades, uh, to, to stick with it, even if it takes a few years to recover. David Kretzman, well put. Thank you for being my final guest star on this week's Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. Next week, well, every 10 episodes or so, I pick stocks. I call my five-stock samplers, I'll pick a theme, put five stocks out there, say these are going to beat the market next one, two, three, five years. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing next week. In the meantime, have a great week. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.